Dad says was my first Drary fic. Uh, I had written in the Snowbats fandom previously, which is a much, much smaller fandom, so it's much less intimidating. Um, there's just, like, not that many fics, and the fics that are big there haven't got nearly as many um, eyes on them. So it was just kind of a, a nice, easy start. And I, I started reading Drary because I was, I had, like, I had just, like, burned through, like, <laughs> like a million words of snowbats because I just fell hard into fan fiction. Um, and I was like, well, Jerry's got to be pretty similar. And I started reading it and it was really intimidating because it's a huge, scary fandom with just these immense, like hugely long fics. These fics that are 400,000 words long. Uh, really, really intimidating. So I read a bunch of them before I even tried to write something and then I started writing I just got this idea it was in my head I couldn't get it out and I started writing it on a little word document uh, and I was like I can't put it up because I don't think it's good enough um and I kept writing it and I was like well I can't put it up because what if I don't finish it and all of these terrifying drary readers you know tar and feather me but finally I had I don't know maybe 5,000 words and I just thought fuck it so I put it up and uh yeah I don't know dad says I think it's a it was a weird outlier like I don't think most people have so much um feedback on their first story so I I I was very lucky I think um I just got a lot of feedback immediately which was like absolutely uh thrilling I I couldn't really believe it um and it was so encouraging and I think actually that the fact that dad says just got so many lovely comments is part of the reason that I carried on writing because I you know I was quite intimidated by it to begin with but um everyone was just so welcoming I guess so yeah I, I guess I wrote it as like um a tentative and frightened entry into the terrifying world of Drary did I really think the readers were going to be terrifying uh, maybe yeah I, I think I I think I felt you know Harry Harry Potter is so massive and there's so much canon and people care about it to such a enormous degree I think it it just I I don't know I I wasn't sure I felt I wasn't confident that I was like allowed to write something in that world if that makes sense that sounds sort of crazy I think it's pretty common to feel like how I how I did uh I would say if you're listening and you have written something um and it's sort of lurking in a corner of your laptop or, or maybe you haven't written something but you've got something lurking in your head I would really say just go ahead and post it because I don't know what I was imagining these commenters were going to say I think I thought they were just going to <laughs> just like rip into me in the comments and be like you, you know drop dead you fucking bad writer but um that's really not the vibe I get the impression in the past there used to be a lot more like <laughs> constructive criticism from people who you maybe didn't want to receive constructive criticism from but uh the current fandom atmosphere is very much a positive reinforcement so I, I really think you know don't let your insecurity prevent you from posting because it's a really wonderful experience to get that feedback and, and it's pretty rare in the real world it's unique in fandom I think if you look at all of my fics on AO3, you will find that almost all of them have the down and out Draco tag. Uh, I just, I just love down and out Draco. Um, 
for a variety of reasons that I'll go into later. But I was talking to Tepra, uh, who wrote Grounds for Divorce, and who's very clever. And we were talking about the Nazis, you know, as you do. And she brought up something that I thought was really interesting about the idea of these down and out Draco fix right there's there's something a little bit troubling about them I think not in a kind of like oh actually it's problematic and you shouldn't write them anymore way uh just in a kind of historically interesting way so we all know that the Death Eaters serve as a not very subtle analogy for the Nazis and so the problem with down and out Draco fix is that uh basically the Nazis weren't all that down and out after World War II now, to preface, I am not a historian and I have these opinions uh, fairly secondhand from people who are more like historians than myself. But my impression is that after World War II, like, yeah, you had some high up Nazis um, were, you know, done in the trials and were executed. A lot of them got away to Argentina where they had good times there, I guess. Some of them killed themselves. But because the Nazi party was so large, uh, you know, basically it just kind of sank back into the population. Um, They had some rules, I think. So for instance, I think there was a rule that um, theoretically they didn't want anyone who had been um, like in the Nazi party to be in the ruling classes of the government. But I think it was really hard to actually put those rules into practice because you know everyone kind of had to join the Nazi party to a degree uh so there there wasn't this kind of feeling that you get in these down and out Draco fix of like you know die death eater scum like oh we know what you did in the war and now we're going to punish you for it uh as far as I can tell that that wasn't really so much the case uh obviously as I said I am I am not a historian but really, from what I've heard, it was in some ways almost the contrary, in that some people who had resisted the Nazi regime were shunned. Uh, so if we're seeing the Death Eaters as a sort of Nazi parallel, that down and out Draco trope doesn't really function the way uh, history functioned, which is fine for there to be a difference. But the reason I think it's interesting to think about this is that I don't think there are very many periods in history in which an oppressor group was toppled so thoroughly that in fact they now are oppressed and the difficulty is now the injustices they face. The prevalence of these down and out fix, I think, suggests this kind of anxiety about justice going too far, which is interesting in a time period when I think by and large, the opposite is true. Uh, you know, if you look at the kind of swing of history, what happens more often is that the people who do evil get away with it and the oppressed are crushed yet again. I mean, I, I thought about this quite a bit and I tried to find some kind of precedent, you know, some some case in history in which a small group of oppressors were then in turn oppressed and I really struggled and as I said again you know I will say I, I am not an, a historian I'm very much an English student um, but the closest thing I could think of uh, in Western history which is really all I know about was the French Revolution right because you had these nobles being executed after they had maybe been sort of vaguely nasty to the peasants but a lot of the really nasty nobles got away because they, they were the extra rich ones. Um, so I, I, 
I don't know if it's actually really a very useful analogy. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought here a little bit, but I think the point I'm trying to make, I think, is that uh, if we see uh, Fick as a reflection of our concerns, I think the down and out Draco tag appears to reflect a concern that is less concerning than the opposite, right? So there's a Fick by uh, Feels for Breakfast, God, I can't remember the name, it was the Hurtfest Fick, in which you know, the Death Eaters have kind of just reformed in a different way. They um, they have a new kind of name and they do new forms of evil, but it's the same principles. They've just morphed into a new form of the old evil. And I think that that is a, a much more uh, serious concern, right, than, oh no, what if we are too cruel to the oppressors? The more serious concern is, oh no, what if the oppressors adapt and evolve and find a new way to oppress us because historically that is what happens i mean as we can see just using the example of america right you have slavery turns into jim crow turns into mass incarceration these are all iterations of the same evil just with different masks on so the down and out draco trope as i said i don't in any way think it's problematic i do not think it is harming anyone i I don't <laughs> I don't think you need to stop writing it. I certainly don't intend to stop writing it. But I think it's interesting to consider the kind of historical parallels that it draws and uh and basically to realize that the down and out Draco tag I think comes from a very different place emotionally than the 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 whole Nazi analogy. Like I don't think when people write down and out Draco, they are thinking in their head, like, oh maybe we were too mean to the Nazis. I think I think there's something else at work there. <laughs> so my husband just uh asked whether people like the down and out Draco trope because they love the Nazis. To which I'll answer, yes, of course. That's why I write it. But uh <laughs> no, I I think I think I write Down and Out Draco because this is so nerdy because I'm really into World War One, and in World War One, like we did squash the Germans too hard and then it caused problems. The Treaty of Versailles in 1919 was too punitive; it was too harsh. It uh, demanded reparations that were unreasonable, and it directly led to and arguably caused World War Two. So I think when I write my Down and Out Draco fix, I have this idea in my head of that where I'm like, look, you know, if you crush people utterly, then uh, they get angry and dissatisfied, and more problems come later. But of course, that's a flawed uh, analogy because uh, there wasn't like such an obvious perpetrator of World War One. This is all probably getting quite boring for you guys. So um, I'm going to move on to the second reason I think people like Down and Out Draco, other than the clear and fascinating analogies with World War One history, which is saving people fix. I think I think Down and Out Draco is a really great way of getting your fix of tragic character is rescued uh, and I, I can't say why I like tragic character is rescued stories but I really do I just find them just like oh they just hit me right in the feels you know and especially when that character seems sort of long-suffering um, I think it's it's just such a it's such a satisfying resolution when that person just suffers and suffers and suffers and then finally their suffering is alleviated and it implies that when you suffer there is someone who will witness it and help you end it and then you can leave the suffering behind and begin your fresh new life 
just free of this trauma. So I think it's um, a very <laughs> perhaps childish notion of um, suffering that I find reassuring. Maybe that's part of why I like Diamond Art Draco. I was just reading the biography of Oscar Wilde and what struck me, uh, and I hope this isn't insensitive to make a parallel here, but what struck me about the end of the biography, right, when it's talking about Oscar Wilde after his 1895 trials uh, and, and imprisonment and he's just being shunned by everyone and he behaves with just like such grace. There's this one scene, for instance, where he's at a bar in Paris and he sits next to this young American um, study abroad student and they get talking and the American is quite into him and then someone at another table passes the American a piece of paper that says, you are sitting next to Oscar Wilde and the American looks up in horror at Oscar Wilde who's, you know, like the most um, hated man in Europe, right, for being gay and Oscar Wilde kind of reads the note and looks at him and says, I will remove the embarrassment and just stands up and leaves. And then a few days later, the American, same American student, is on a bridge in Paris looking down at the water, and Oscar Wilde comes to stand next to him and just begins talking, and talking so beautifully, all about, like, the skyline and the person who built the bridge and all the craftsmanship that went into all of the mouldings on the bridge, and he, he just sounds like he's just so brilliant, and he can talk as if it's poetry. And he talks for about ten minutes, and the American just listens. And then Oscar Wilde nods at him and says, I have been much alone, and leaves. And it's so sad, right? And I think when I think about Down and Out Draco Fix, um, the ones I write and the ones I like to read, they have an element of that Oscar Wilde misery of this person who didn't deserve to be shunned, who's being treated awfully by everyone and betrayed by everyone, even though they didn't deserve it. And so I think that's how those fics operate, sort of structurally. But of course, th that that is troubling as a parallel because, you know, Draco Malfoy isn't innocent. You know, he was a Death Eater. Um, so I, I don't really know how to kind of connect those two ideas, but I just think it's interesting. Uh, if you want to read more about my thoughts on Oscar Wilde, I have two Oscar Wilde reviews on my Instagram at Let Them Eat Books with underscores instead of spaces. Um, one of that biography and one of De Profundis, which I'll probably talk about later. When I wrote this, I was teaching Brideshead Revisited by Evelyn Waugh, which is one of my favourite books. It's funny, uh, when I first read it, I didn't like it very much, but the more I read it, the more I get out of it. Uh, and I think you can sort of see traces of Brideshead in uh, the character of Blaze, um, who's my, I mean, I, w I wouldn't go so far as to say my favourite character, maybe he is my favourite character in this fic, but he's certainly my favourite character to voice. I had a whale of a time. It'll just have to be unspeakably posh, just posher than you think is even practical. <laughs> um... But yeah, Blaze, for sure. That whole Blaze scene, I think, is inspired by, um, there's a character in Brideshead called Anthony Blanche, who is the best part of Brideshead. He's so great. He's he's mixed race and like just completely out gay guy um, and really, really bitter and angry and funny. There's this amazing monologue he has where he describes 
how the night before he was in his bedroom uh, in his Oxford College, which is Christchurch College, I think, and these big beefy boys come to throw him in the fountain because he's gay and they're homophobes. And he kind of just goes, oh, if you beefy boys all want to touch me up and throw me in a fountain, don't let me say no. Um, And they all are very uncomfortable by this, obviously, because he keeps just implying that they want to throw him in the fountain because they're turned on which they are horrified by. And so he accompanies them down to the fountain. And then no one wants to touch him to throw him into the fountain. So he just kind of steps into the fountain and then poses and just does all these different shapes with his body until they get bored and walk away. And it's very funny, but all the way through the monologue, you can tell that he's like actually very deeply distressed by the whole event. And he's trying to make it sound funny, even though it really upset him. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I... I had that in mind a little bit with this blaze. Uh, not that I think it's very closely linked. There's another link um, to Brideshead in one of my other fics in Adventures of a Suicidal Gentleman. Draco um, responds to bullying by pretending he's turned on. And that was, again, that's an Anthony Blanche reference. But um, yeah, there's a scene in Dad Says where when Blaze gets his cocktails, he goes, yum, yum. And that is an allusion to something that Anthony Blanche does where he orders four cocktails in a row and lines them up and looks at them and says, yum, yum. I just thought, a ridiculous thing to do. I loved it. Because this is my first fic, uh, rereading it to record it was really interesting because I I was like quite judgy about it. Um, A friend of mine was like, it's your juvenilia. Uh, If you're not familiar with the word juvenilia, juvenilia is the word for um, (laughs) the stuff an author wrote before they were good. So I do think there's some truth to that. Uh, Dad says has some, I think, pretty glaring errors. The first is that it's emotionally a bit clumsy. I think it's trying so hard to make you feel sympathetic for Draco that it kind of misses the mark a bit um i when i was reading out loud what struck me was how just all of the canonical characters like harry and ron hermione are just so immediately on board with draco and just so sympathetic and just you know sorry that this terrible injustice has been served which doesn't seem uh i don't know maybe real or maybe it just that it lessens um how the reader feels about Draco's tragedy because everyone's just so on board with it. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just think it's clumsily done. In the same vein, I think that Harry's emotional arc within his relationship with Draco doesn't make total sense. So, you know, Harry meets Draco, thinks he's really, really hot, uh, keeps thinking he's really hot, really fancies him, wants to kiss him. Oh my God, they sleep together. Suddenly Harry's like... Uh, I wish I hadn't done that because Draco's a Death Eater. I think there's a way I could have made that work better. I think maybe if I had sort of threaded uh, doubts all the way through the fic, um, if it had been made clearer earlier in the fic why it was that actually even if Draco was interested, Harry wouldn't be interested, I think that that moment after they sleep together would have hit uh, more true. But I think as it is, it seems a little abrupt. I think it's a little flawed. And then the third thing that I think is a sort of drawback to this fic is that it's not very funny, Um, which is fine, but I just think it's, I don't know, maybe this is part of what I mean about the sort of tragedy feeling heavy handed. I think that um, a little bit of humour sort of lightens up tragedy and makes it 
um, stronger and more resilient in in terms of um, achieving its aim. And I think that Dad Says is, is a fairly humorless piece. Therefore, the sadness is just sort of less poignant to me, I think. So I've written a lot, uh, and I only just started writing fan fiction in the last year. So uh, I have extensive experience of pouring myself into a piece of writing and then it sitting on my laptop and my mother reluctantly reading it and then sending me an email saying, it's very good, I'm proud of you. And then me feeling unsatisfied. That's been, generally speaking, my experience of what happens when I write something. I write it, no one reads it. I send it to publishers, they ignore it. It's sad. Uh, It makes you feel self-indulgent as if, you know, why are you wasting all this time on something that doesn't benefit anyone else? You know, and my friends are wonderful and will read my manuscripts and give me feedback, but they're doing it as a favour to me. So getting comments from people who, I mean, I remember the first time I got a comment from someone being like, thank you for writing this. And I was like, excuse me? Are you, what? <laughs> like, you're glad I wrote, th- it's not, an, it's not an inconvenience that I've asked you to read this. Like, I don't now owe you a cup of coffee for the favor you have done me. Like, w- it's amazing. Uh, I think that that's probably one of the best things about fan fiction is finding readership, you know, is finding people who actually want to read for themselves, uh, which kind of teaches you who your readers are and what your readers like. And I think has had a big impact. I mean, we'll see uh, with my next book that I write, because the last book I wrote that I'm trying to get published now, um, I wrote before I got into fan fiction. Um, So I feel like I've learned so much about writing, um, not only from just writing, you just, you know, the the sheer quantity of writing that I've done in the last year about (laughs) Draco and Harry falling in love, but also just from seeing what people like um, and which fix do better and like which scenes people comment on is is just, uh, it's like the best market research in the world. You know what I mean? And it's so gratifying. Uh, and encouraging. I mean, I think it's really made a, a pretty fundamental difference in my confidence um, and in in my faith in my writing. So I'm very, very grateful to it. Um, still, sort of astonished that anyone is reading anything I have to write um, willingly because I'm so used to having to bribe people into doing it. My husband has just told me this is a good place to plug my newsletter, where you can find out more about my original writing and thoughts on fandom, etc., etc., etc. So at newsletter.gallopod.com, you can sign up for my newsletter. I would be thrilled if you would. It would be very nice. The very first comment that I got on Dad Says was from an author called Alex Meg, and it, I can't remember exactly what it said. It was just like, "This is great," um, and in retrospect. I I wonder if Alex Meg thought I had read their fic because um, I would say probably their most popular fic is a fic called A Big Black Sky. And it's a fic I would definitely recommend if you liked Dad Says. It's about um, an abusive relationship. So Draco's in an abusive relationship um, and he has a child and Scorpius, right? He's like four or five and he kind of manages to escape but he's in such a terrible situation but he ends up living with Harry and Harry kind of falls in love with Draco through witnessing Draco's resilience and also like what an amazing father he is. So there's a lot of really, really similar 
themes. Um, so if you like Dad Says, I really think uh, A Big Black Sky, absolute banger in the um, Father Draco canon. Um, yeah, what was cool about that comment from Alex Meg, there's just this very supportive, like nice, good job comment, is that much later, I finally read A Big Black Sky. And I was like, oh, I love this. This is amazing. And I've already had contact with the author. And that's something that's also so cool about fandom is that, you know, in real life, if I like Sally Rooney, Sally Rooney doesn't know who I am. She doesn't give a shit about me. That's really demoralizing. It's cool how in fandom, like, you can have comments from people whose writing you like, like they're real. You can reach them. Um, it's kind of amazing. Anyway, um, I think it's kind of lovely that my first comment was from Alex Meg. I don't have children. I'm not actually very keen on children. Uh, they're quite sort of sticky, opinionated in the wrong ways. I mean, they haven't got much to form their opinions on, right? I mean, they're not as experienced as I am, for instance. So what are they on about? They're not as cute as cats, but they make more noise. And yet, <laughs> and yet, I keep writing kid fix, right? I wrote um, Dad Says and Cassiopeia, Lily Malfoy. Um, I think it's because I really do like kids once they hit about nine. I homeschool kids. Um, and so I have a lot of interaction with just like, just these brilliant, awful children and teenagers and um I also think I privately think maybe I'm still 12 in my head I think I came awake at 12 I think everyone comes awake at a certain point and at that point onwards they are kind of um cognizant of the world around them and for me that came at 12 and so I feel very um you know still 12 at heart to be honest so I end up writing a lot of kit fix right or I have written these two kit fix and I have had a few comments from people who have kids who are like, I like how you write kids, which is always very affirming. And possibly I, I'm writing very unrealistic kids. I certainly, I think that the kids I write, um, Scorpius in, in this fic, for, ex, for instance, uh, tend to be very, very stoic and self-contained, which I, from my experience of, you know, trying to work in a Starbucks while toddlers are nearby is that that's not necessarily always the case. But I do think that what I try to do with my kids is not make them lovely. I think they are often just as nasty as we are. In fact, sometimes much nastier and they can be conniving and they have their own plans and they're selfish in their own selfish ways um, and clumsy in, the, in hiding their emotions. So I think those are the things I try and pick out. But I, yeah, I'm sure uh, if slash when I have children, I will go back and read those fics and be like, my God, what was I thinking? So in my other kid fic, uh, which is Cassiopeia Lily Malfoy, in which um, Harry and Draco have a child, um, something I remember thinking about a lot was I need to make this child really different from Scorpius. Because Scorpius is, you know, he's a nerd and he's quite insecure and he's just like, he uses politeness as a weapon uh, which I always find interesting, people who who can be kind of aggressively polite. I think what a fascinating way to to deal with the onslaughts of life. Um, I think I kind of want to be like that, 
to have it as a shield and that's that's what he uses right but he's also um got this kind of big pool of anger that i think is only just starting to to overflow the end of the fic and the kind of epilogue you can see that that anger has finally kind of blossomed and now he's he's causing a lot of troubles and i think he would be a very difficult teenager um but he's very different from the other kid that i have written which is cassiopeia uh who because she has more of harry in her is really just a completely different type of person um i think maybe one of the dangers in kid fic is that all the kids can seem sort of idealized and very very sweet and sort of just there to further the romance plot that said one of the reasons i think i wanted to write this particular fic is that i love the idea of people falling in love with each other sort of sideways like the idea that you fall in love with someone because of their behavior towards someone else. And this is, I mean, this is not original, right? This is what Jane Austen did in Pride and Prejudice when Elizabeth Bennet, um, who hates Mr. Darcy, ends up in his house. Um, she's visiting around his beautiful grand house. And A, the house is really nice. She's like, wow, he's so rich. That's very hot. B, his housekeeper is obsessed with him, right? His housekeeper is like, wow, Mr. Darcy is the nicest, best guy ever. Everyone loves him. He's so wonderful. He's just beloved by all and Lizzie's like, really? I, I'm, I find that surprising. And then she meets Mr. Darcy's sister. And Mr. Darcy's sister is also obsessed with Mr. Darcy and talks about how great he is. And then Mr. Darcy meets her aunt and uncle and is really nice to them. None of these moments are interactions between Lizzie and Darcy. But they are all moments that help further Lizzie's romance with Darcy because she's falling in love with him sideways, right? She's falling in love with how he is around other people, which I think is one of the more romantic ways to fall in love because it's more of a guarantee of a person's personality than if they're just nice to you. Which kind of brings me to um, another thing that I think inspired this fic, uh, and it sounds really silly. Um, have you ever heard of Little Lord Fauntleroy? Um, is that how you pronounce it, or is it Little Lord Fauntleroy? Little Lord Fauntleroy? Fauntleroy. I'm going to call it Fauntleroy. Uh, Little Lord Fauntleroy by Fran Francis Hodgson Burnett, who wrote A Little Princess and the Secret Garden. Uh, Little Lord Fauntleroy was massively famous in the Victorian era, but no one reads it anymore because it's kind of stupid. Uh, I love it. The plot of Little Lord Fauntleroy is this. There's this evil earl and he's cut off his son because he married an American and then the son dies, leaving the American woman with uh, her child by the son who was disinherited. So the grandfather has um, called them back so that little Lord F can be the next earl. So the book is stupid for a lot of reasons, but um, the part of it that really spoke to me is the relationship between the grandfather and the mother who he hates. He's been really nasty about this mother and he separates little Lord Fauntleroy away from uh, his mother and makes the mother live in some far, like faraway house. And um, he tries to like poison little Lord Fauntleroy about, or against his mother to a degree. But little Lord Fauntleroy is so unbelievably sweet and has clearly never heard a bad word about the grandfather. Clearly, his mother has only ever said nice things about the grandfather. And the grandfather slowly starts to learn to love and respect the mother, even though she's not there, just because of how little Lord Fauntleroy has been raised. And I think, although that's not like a romantic plotline, um, I, I found that a really compelling element to the novel because it's that thing of learning to respect and admire someone because of something they have done completely separate to you that you are witnessing without them realizing you're witnessing. I think there's something inherently romantic about that.
So I know I've mentioned a couple of books here, but I'm, I'm just going to go into a little bit more depth about Oscar Wilde's De Profundis. When Oscar Wilde was in prison, um, I think 1895 to 97, he um, couldn't write, uh, and he wasn't allowed paper really, except to write letters. So he wrote this immense, long, furious, upset, sad letter to his ex-boyfriend, Bosie, um, who was very hot, by the way. Google him. He's good looking. Um, I know he's good looking because I always tell my students whenever a character in history is good looking and then I show them a picture and usually they go, Alice, what's wrong with you? Uh, but in this case, they were like, all right, fine. <laughs> so um, I got away with that one. But um, yeah, he wrote this really angry letter to Bosie and it's just beautiful. I mean, it's just such an excellent portrayal of just this like miserable, toxic, passionate, furious, gorgeous, horrible relationship. Um, it's a letter to the ex, but it's also philosophical and wise and beautifully written. Uh, is it really related to Dad Says? Uh, I guess in the sense of down and out character, finding strength through philosophy. Uh, that that seems relevant. I also just think, to be honest, that if you're reading a lot of queer fan fiction, it makes sense to try and read some queer literature. Um, there is a difference, right, between um, fics written by people who are not gay men, about gay men, and queer literature, which is usually by gay men, for gay men. I think... It's valuable to read both. I think if you're reading one, it's good to read the other. Um, De Profundis is just so gorgeous. It's pretty short. Uh, I would definitely recommend it. To clarify, queer literature also encapsulates literature by uh, people who aren't gay men. Um, <laughs> but I just mean that given that Slash is so much about gay men, I think it, it is useful to read um, stuff written by them. I'm so grateful that anyone has listened to A, the podvic and b these extremely self-indulgent bonus episodes um so i really really appreciate you guys listening um if you liked it please do tell someone about it i don't know go out and shout it on the street um you'll look like a crazy person i think it could actually be quite a cool new look for you try it out um my next book that I'm going to read is going to be Can I Tell You Something? Which is low-key maybe my favourite fic of mine, but it doesn't get very many hits because it's about um, drug-addicted burlesque dancer Draco Malfoy, which I feel like puts people off because it sounds like it's going to be a lot. I'm not saying it's not a lot, but I, I do think it's quite fun. There's texting, there's cats, quite a lot of drugs. Um, not heroin. If you're worried about heroin, there's no heroin. So, you know, relax on that front. Jesus. Thank you to everyone who's already signed up to the newsletter. So exciting. Um, if you have not signed up yet, what are you waiting for? You could have more of me. More. Uh, so newsletter.gallopod.com and you can hear my thoughts in your inbox and in your email. Isn't that a wonderful thing? If you're listening to these bonus episodes, I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that you don't um, hate them. Uh Although, who knows? I have a friend who hate-watches a particular YouTube book blogger. I thought it was a fad. It just keeps going. I keep getting texts about Sunbeam's Jess. And she doesn't like Sunbeam's Jess, who seems perfectly nice, by the way. I have no problem, personally, with Sunbeam's Jess. But my friend is having this, like, ferocious enmity. Um, anyway, they'll probably fall in love eventually. That's what happens, isn't it, right? When people hate each other? What was I saying? So, I really appreciate you guys listening to the bonus episodes and I would really really appreciate it if you could leave like a review or a rating on the Apple podcast app uh, it helps other people find the um, podcast and it makes 
it look more legitimate, I think. That's, that's what I've been told by the internet. Thank you so much for listening and see you next week for the first part of Can I Tell You Something? <laughs>